Hello everyone, it's Hugo here from the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Before we get stuck into today's inspirational episode with Curtis McGrath, I just wanted to quickly say that the sound quality from my microphone unfortunately wasn't great. Uh, There were some technical difficulties and I had to use a backup recording. So I do apologize in advance that that is why the quality of my audio isn't great. However, Curtis sounds fantastic and at the end of the day, it is all about him and his remarkable story. So hopefully you enjoyed the episode as much as I did and please tune in right until the end because Curtis will leave you with some take-home tips on what he's learned through his incredible journey. Hello and welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast, an inspiring, real and raw conversation with Hugo and Willie, two army mates and cancer survivors who are passionate in helping the lives of other young men and women. Welcome back everyone to the 25 Stay Alive podcast, I'm Hugo and today I'm joined by one of the most inspirational people you'll ever meet. Curtis McGrath, OIM, epitomizes what it means to be a true Aussie hero. His story of overcoming adversity and triumphing through tragedy is simply remarkable. In 2012, Curtis was only 24 years old when he stepped on an IED in Afghanistan and devastatingly lost both his legs. When Curtis was carried from the blast site, he told his section, you'll see me in the Paralympics. And four years later, they did as he won gold at the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games. Curtis's courage, determination, and mental resilience is extremely uplifting, and it is an honor to have him here today. Curtis, mate, welcome to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Thank you, thanks for having me. It's an absolute honor to have you here, and I uh, spoke to my current army chaplain and padre, Isaac, and if you're listening, Isaac, g'day, Um, (laughs) and he, Heard that I was doing these podcasts and he mentioned your name straight away. I said, I have to get you on this podcast because you're a pretty inspirational guy. Yeah. So we might just kind of learn a bit more about the Curtis McGrath and I suppose yeah. um, let's backtrack a bit and I guess you're born and raised in New Zealand and what were you like growing up as a kid and, and what were your aspirations and, and desires wanting to, to join the military? I was born in, in a play, little place called Dunedin. Um, it's a sort of medium sized city in, in uh, New Zealand. Uh, it's right down the bottom, so it's pretty cold. Uh, I was living uh, in central Otago, sort of Queenstown, Wanaka area as I grew up as, as a young young lad. And then parents wanted a lifestyle change and moved over to Western Australia onto a farm to something really different. Um, lived there for four years, started high school, uh, and then moved back to uh, Queenstown okay. um, and uh, finished off high school there. And during that time, I had a, a really sort of adventurous lifestyle. Um, outdoor recreation was a, a class uh, in which we were given the option to do at high school. So New Zealand strikes me that quite an adventure. Especially, especially Queenstown, you know, it's one of those places where if anyone's ever been there, they'll understand what I mean. It's just the adventure capital. Uh, there's mountains, there's lakes, there's rivers um, yeah, and everything else and bush and walks. So the, the outdoor recreation subject, you know, was snowboarding and and snow caving and yeah, alpine survival um, during the winter and then kayaking and um, things like that and and climbing and- Bit bit different um, to maths in England. Yeah, yeah, so you know, Friday afternoons we'd we'd finish up school work as you'd know it uh, and then head off to, uh, you know, the wilderness really. And I remember one time uh, getting taken all the way over to another side of this hill, maybe some 15, 20 k's away from the school and the teacher's like, all right, everyone out, go off the bus. And he's like, all right, we'll see you back at school and just drove off. So we had, we had to walk back to school. So <laughs> over this hill and uh, yeah, it was pretty cool. And, and you know, having that sort of opportunity to, I don't even know if they can do that anymore yeah, as, as, as a school as you know, the OH&S and all, all the safety that's involved. But um, yeah, that, that sort of opportunity to explore and, and it is that kind of adventurous mindset you obviously had growing up yeah um, is that what kind of led you to the down the stream of the army yeah yeah i wanted you know to explore the place and the world as, as mm. we know it and and i thought and I, I saw the army as an opportunity to do that and i had a bit of a passion in aviation and i wanted to come over and, and be over an aircraft technician so fixing helicopters um, is what i wanted to do I came over and had all the uh this right schooling and, and right grades and everything like yeah great great where 
yeah, you're all good. Uh, we're just not recruiting them for another 12 to 18 months. Is there anything else you want to do? And I was like, oh, all right. Um, I was like, well, can you give me some you know, advice on this? And they're like, oh, we're looking for these sort of roles. And I was like, oh, what about this one, combat engineering? And it sounded pretty good. And, you know, blow a lot of stuff up yeah. and, and build stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I can see myself doing that. But unbeknown to me, it was more of like a, a laboring sort of role in the military. And yeah. um, I suppose I should go into what, what actually a combat engineer does. Yeah, I suppose, well, um, yeah, for the listeners, uh, I know... We have touched on in our previous episodes. So the army is a huge organisation. Mm. A lot of people don't realise listening that they think the army is kind of front line. You know, infantry soldiers, special forces, kicking doors down, type of thing. That's yeah, what they, yeah. they, they kind of visualise the army as. So yeah, I suppose as a combat engineer, yeah. um, and specifically your job role itself, and especially overseas, uh, yeah. what if you can just explain the types of things that you personally have to do? Mm. So the official role of a combat engineer is to provide mobility and deny mobility. And that can be anything from building a massive trench to stop you know, a tank or a vehicle or, or even maneuvers or, or, of soldiers. Um, or we can do the opposite of that and build the bridge and you know create a, a land bridge across that gap or demine areas, fell trees, you know, build bridges, roads, uh, also providing um, you know, clean drinking water is, yep. is one of our sort of specialty tasks. So a lot of humanitarian aid. Yeah, that's right. And if you think about it, most of this is done in an, a, a, an improvised and expedited sort of cir- circumstances. So we're trying to, you know, do it as fast as we can and provide that support immediately, as opposed to you know, building a, you know, a, a water facility that is permanent. Um, so we'll bring in with these machines and we can turn salt water into, into drinking water. Yeah, it's as awesome. good as, you know, Mount Franklin or something yeah, like that. So, um, you know, I got the opportunity to do a whole range of different things in the military. I was over in East Timor um, building medical centers and bridges and roads for the uh, remote communities and, and also the, the, the capital in Delhi. And then into Indonesia when I was uh, sent over there on Padang Assist, which is, uh, they had a very large earthquake in Indonesia in, in the city of Padang. And it, uh, destroyed all the, the, the sort of the water and infrastructure, so we're yeah. over there cleaning the cleaning the water for them and, and helping them uh, produce almost a million liters of water in two weeks. So um, it was you know a very sort of fulfilling uh, opportunity and job because we're going over there and making a real difference. Absolutely, but, and mm. it's probably very different to I guess than what you then have to experience as a combat engineer in a very offensive environment in Afghanistan. Yeah, it's correct. So they're all the humanitarian sort of roles, as well as a few others. Um, but uh, when we move into sort of that combat role, um, our, our role really does change. And and everyone thinks you know that the infantry soldier in a tank and, and all that sort of stuff yeah. should be the front line. But actually, in order for them to move safely around the battlefield in the Middle East sort of environment. Um, the engineers are the ones out the front searching the way forward, trying to make it as safe as possible to move around the, the battle space. And, and that can be difficult. Yeah, yeah. Sure. yeah. absolutely. Um, so it, it, and, and also as well as that, we, you know, we're, we're out there in, in the valleys with the infantry and, and, and the other soldiers trying to take away the capability of the fight of the enemy before we have to even shoot. So as, as a, a combat engineer, we're generally looking at um, the ground and, and our surroundings as opposed to people and, and uh, things that could do harm to us. Yeah. We're, we're trying to find the object that will do the harm rather than the person, so. Yeah, and so you joined the Army in 2006. You're only mm-hmm. 18. Yeah. Uh, you had a East Timor deployment humanitarian mission uh, in Indonesia. Yep. And then you deployed to Afghanistan when you were 24, so about yep. six years later, uh, as, that, as you're explaining that combat uh, role of the combat engineer supporting, I suppose, the ground troops. Now, I suppose to describe a sort of a, a general day for someone like you in that role, um, you did a lot of sweeping or mind clearing of yep. IEDs and for those listening, um, improvised explosive devices. Yeah, so there's quite a lot of training that goes into being able to identify uh, them sort of what we call a vulnerable point, and that's where we will get targeted. For example, on the side of a hill, um, a steep hill, uh, there might be a road running along it, and then that means that our vehicles uh, won't be able to drive anywhere else apart from this this road, so that therefore that's a vulnerable point, and we'll sweep forward. In that process, we're looking for you know um, unearthed, uh, dug up soil, yeah. um, that's, that's ground signs, um, an improvised explosive device, 
in, in sort of general terms as a, uh, a homemade landmine made out of whatever they want really and, and, and how they if I'm wrong that these days they don't even they don't even have to make them out of metal so it makes your job even harder to yeah, try that's using correct. a metal detector can't yeah. even detect them yeah so you know there's certain ways in which they can sort of decrease the amount of metal in it and um, all soil actually has a, a quite a metallic properties to it so you can increase and decrease your sensitivity of your metal detector determining on, on the soil type yeah. and, and that can obviously be a little bit confusing especially if you come over something that's naturally in the ground and it's a piece of metal it's one of those things that you get taught on how to identify and, and, and move around and mitigate if, if you do come across it so and, and how many in your deployment to Afghanistan um, how many did you roughly clear before obviously the, the accident or the incident? So. Yeah, so I was meant to be there for six months and, and uh, three months into it, uh, we got an, uh, this, this patrol order came through that we're going out to uh, establish this checkpoint. And it wasn't until on this patrol that we found our first live IED. So we'd been uh-huh. around, you know, moving around the battle space in the whole Uruzgan province for you know, three months straight. And not come across one IED. And um, one particular area, it was obviously. It's one particular area. Kazarizgan, um, at the time that we were there, the only uh, coalition troops that were out there were American Special Forces, so Green Berets, um, pretty serious fighting soldiers, and, and they literally go out and, and to fight the enemy, whereas that wasn't our job as general general soldiers. We were there to sort of help improve the, the situation for the Afghan people rather than going out and killing and capturing yeah. the, the enemy. Um, so, Were you prepared um, for that though? In- we were trained. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. You can never know if you're prepared or not until yeah. you're in that situation. So the, I think the infantry were more, more prepared in that way, whereas our job is purely looking at the ground, looking for those IEDs and, and trying to um, mitigate that threat or minimize that threat um, that, that could be on anyone in any, because they're indiscriminate. It could be not just for our patrol, it could be for you know, the school kids on their way to school or the, 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 the mother going down to the creek to get some water, like it's, it's anyone. And that probably describes the type of people they are. It's yeah, they yeah. They don't really care. No, they don't. And, and generally the, the insurgents that are in the area are not from that area. Yeah. They're, they're not, it's very difficult to, to know where these people are and what their mentality is and, and what they want to do and why they want to do it. Yeah, and so, and so that day, I suppose, when you got the call up for this particular mission, you found your first live IED. Yeah. Um, what was going through your head when you found that? Did you kind of realize, like you said, your training obviously instinctively came into it and you, you did what you had to do, but what was kind of going through your mind? Yeah, um, it's funny you say that because I wasn't the one who found it. I was on the path to find it. We'd sort of okay. deemed that our current sort of structure on the ground as we move around our sort of footprint um, was not the right one to... Uh, as, as we're usually taught. What I mean by that is like our positioning, like the, it's usually just staggered down the road. This way um, we can clear the, the, the actual road that we're gonna drive on. But in this situation, we, we deployed another guy out the side and he was the one who spotted it okay. first with his eyes because he was a little bit further ahead than I was, but he wasn't on the road. So I was on the road where the, the cars were coming behind us. Um, and he spotted it and he went in on it and found it. And um, we pulled back to the vehicle and um, obviously, everything starts to pick up you know the danger level up until this point we'd not come across an id before so we felt like the country wasn't as dangerous as what we thought for me personally i felt the country wasn't didn't feel that dangerous you know everyone was smiling and happy to see us and we only got shot out once but that was on the way out to this patrol so everything was sort of going really swell so once you're in that dangerous area Mm. um now explain or fast forward a little bit to, to the incident itself but what were the events leading up to that yeah so, so in order to remove an id especially in the situation we were um we'd have to call up the explosive ordnance disposal guys they're the guys in the bomb suits the robots and um, they come out and deem it's a bit you know, dangerous to touch or, or pull out manually so they'll just use a robot and place some explosives next to it pull everything back and blow it up in place and we weren't the only patrol or mission that was going on in the, in the area. So that was a, the EOD guys, they're an asset that we only one of, and they were being pulled every which way because there was so much happening in the, in the battle space. So we got up onto the, the checkpoint. It was meant to be a five day patrol. We got up onto the checkpoint at the end of the third day, I think it yeah. was, after finding a number of IEDs and calling out the EOD guys and yeah. all of maybe eight, 900 meters we traveled in that process. So wow. not far, but- so You traveled sorry, eight, 900 meters in five days or so? Yeah, 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 not not far. So 
it, it really gives you the sense of you know you can't move freely, yeah. and that's their that's their whole purpose. And that's your, why your mind's got to be yeah. pretty, pretty focused. Yeah. You got to be on point. So it's um, pretty tough to sort of stay that focused. And on the fourth day, we, we you know, on the third day, we got up on there and we had a look around and we saw the damage of the the checkpoint that we're sort of reestablishing. And then. The next day we got approval to explosively remove this large boulder that was blocking, and that was gonna be a cool task. You know, we hadn't used any explosives yeah. um, to, to do this sort of thing before, especially on the deployment. And, you know, I because of our fatigue level, we're working like 13, 14 hour days at you know, 3,000 meters above sea level, 40 degrees temperature with all the kit on us, yeah. and you know, lack of tea. So, uh, yeah, it's it, full on. So I, I got a little bit confused about the, the order that was has come through and it was only, I, I believe it was my miscommunication. I wasn't listening properly and, and 100% I'll take that blame of, of not listening properly. And But um, I'm the person who searched over top of this ID that I was about to step on and um, and if it was someone else, I would feel quite bad regardless of which, which person or where yeah. they're from stepped on it. So I went to the wrong boulder and I was sitting there waiting for my team to come over and tell me what you know what we were doing and my mate pitch came over to to me he goes mate what are you doing i was like oh i thought this was the right no mate the other one i was like, oh yeah sweet so i picked up my stuff and just walking along and um pitch was about 10 15 meters behind me um and and i stepped right on it and in the movies there's a, a bit of a click or uh, you know that you've got this opportunity to sort of pull out or put some weight down no, no not in this case not not at all there's it's it's so instant that um i don't even know i didn't didn't hear the bang. I didn't so it was hear literally that. in a matter of almost milliseconds, your milliseconds. entire life yep. completely changed from that one step um, yep. on that IED. Yeah. And what was, it just obviously happened so quickly. What happened from then? Like, what do you, looking back on, what do you remember? What do you recall? And what were the first things going through your head? I, I recall quite a lot of it. Just the one thing I don't remember is the actual blast itself. Yeah. Um, so you didn't, you didn't pass out? No, no. I came to sort of in, in a, the, the sense of the word when there's still rocks and things falling from the sky. So it's pretty much straight after, like within a second. And I was sort of on, on the flat of my back, sort of looking up at the sky and there's rocks and things falling. Dazed and confused. And I get up on my elbows and look down and I can see that there's a blast crowd next to me. I can see there's blood coming out of my legs that whatever's left of them. And I knew what had happened. That's when the pain hit me as well. It wasn't, you know, when I was lying there on my back, it was when I saw what had happened. And yeah, it was just like a freight train. It was so intense that it wasn't just my my, my legs. It was like my fingers, my ears, my tongue, my legs, my everything. back, everything was sore. I couldn't sort of pinpoint it, uh, the pain. So it was pretty rough. So it's pretty incredible you can remember the, the detail yeah. of it um, yeah. being so long ago now. Yeah, yeah. Is it hard to talk about it all, or not really? Not, done not it? really. I've done. I've told done my story so. a few times, and and, um, and there's certain parts that you get you emotional, but I think that's what makes it um, an important thing mm. to to talk about, um, regardless of of the uh, the trauma that someone goes through. If they're able to talk about it and talk through it, you can process it a little bit differently each time, and and maybe. You know, bring out a detail or yeah, re-trigger sure. a memory that it's it's um i think it's it's a good process to talk about the whole situation over and over yeah um just to, to sort of you know really get it down and, and understand the things that you can control and things that you can't and, sure. and, and that's i think that's a really important point to to, to figure out there and, and, and understand that whatever was happening in that situation we had done everything we yeah. could in order to avoid that and we just missed one and that this is the way life is sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And it's um, yeah, pretty powerful to hear you say that. And mm. I suppose lying there, like you said, in that sense of shock, the pain started coming mm. through. You literally looked down and you had no legs. Yeah. Uh, everything else going on. Were you screaming at that stage? Were you kind of calling for help? Obviously, the blast was pretty loud. So your, your, set, your section came running over. And what played out? Because you must have known, like you said, as soon as you saw down the severity of it. Mm. Yep. You would have known there was very short. There's a short time frame for life and death. Yeah. 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 So I was also the, the combat first aid for my team. So I, I was a little bit more experienced in, in training with first aid. So it was technically me who was supposed to be tra treating someone else in this situation. But unfortunately, it was me who stepped on it, and it was me who was the one who had to talk people through it. So I knew. Whilst you were playing that yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's so incredible. whilst whilst I um. You know, I was lying there, I was, I was yelling at people and 
or yelling at pitch first and he came running over and put on the first tourniquet and did all that right and by the time he had done that the rest of the team had got to me and started the first aid and was making them check that you know everything was right and everything stopped bleeding with the tourniquets because if the first one doesn't stop the bleeding you just apply another one and yeah. do it tighter and they bundled me up and picked me onto a, a stretcher and sort of you know we're joking about losing brand new boots and things like that and having a bit of a, a laugh and using black humor in a sense where uh probably not the right time to be using humor but it's i think it's a very it's a tool that can be used to to sort of put people's mind at peace and oh for sure yeah, and so. i suppose for you that's self-explanatory how, how difficult and how confronting that would have been but i suppose for your close mates as well like you said putting on that that brave face and like yeah. you know putting in some humor in there and really trying to distract you like that in itself it would have been difficult for them no doubt i suppose for those your mates who were there you must have formed a very special uh, friendship and connection since that yeah yeah that's right and when you when you're overseas with each other and you, you do everything together you know you go to the, the mess hall together you go to the gym together you go to work together you play playstation mm. together um and it's you, you become very tight tight and close with your with your mates and they become your second family so um, in order to you know maintain that, that that sort of relationship that we've got, I think it's important to always connect back to to the people that that help you through and and um, you know pitch and um, Livo and Wurtzi that those guys that were there and um, a part of my team, but there was so many other people that um, yeah, were sure. a part of that uh, thing. And I, I've I've talked about it before as um, the person in the middle of, of the trauma. In my situation, there's sort of the trauma ripples through the, your rings of support. So the, the immediate, you know, was, was my team right there. And I'd say the ring on the outside of that was probably my family members. And then the ring on the outside of that was my military and my friends as well. So, and it, it sort of ripples through and, and that trauma is affecting all those different Absolutely. rings of support. And for, for those listening in, you're having a bad day and you're stuck in traffic or you're, you're sore after going for a run. Um, here's Curtis. McGrath, who at only 24 years of age, he's serving his country in front line in Afghanistan uh, as a combat engineer, and he's had both his legs blown off, and he's basically got you know less than an hour to seek emergency medical treatment, uh, life or death, and it's a pretty remarkable situation to be in. When it happened, did you accept death at any stage, or did you think whilst you were there that you know what, I don't think I'm going to make it? So, so whilst. I was getting bundled up and put onto the stretcher and getting carried and, and doing tourniquets and all that sort of thing. Um, I didn't think I was going to die yeah. at all because things were happening, things were progressing in terms in terms of medical procedures and which we could do on the, yeah. in the field. You had faith in mm. the system. Yeah, yeah. And then then they laid me down next to the stretcher, uh, next to the vehicles, and we were waiting for the helicopter. And it was that waiting that I knew that was going to kill me. There was nothing else that was going to do it. No, if I didn't die within two minutes of that blast going off, I was all right. Yeah, and, so it's now you're the Until timer. that waiting. Because the blood um, loss and... Exactly, yeah. So um, it was an odd sort of thing to, to go through because the, the thinking of what is ahead of you sort of stops. You, you start thinking about, you know, should I have done this differently or rather than what I'm going to do when I get home or what I'm going to do if I get better or yeah, things like yeah, that. Yeah. It sort of stops, like just boom, full stop. And then you start thinking about, all right, like what is going to be my final moment and, and how do I go about this? And fortunately, um, a, a couple of mates of mine had been to Afghanistan on rotations before me and this, they got told to, to write out final letters um, to, to you know, your, your partners and your family members. and. And which I did, you know, no one else in my team did, but whether that's a, a jinx or, or whatever, yeah, but yeah. Um, it's, you know, one of those things that I thought was you know, necessary and, and, I, and I, I did it, I wrote, wrote out some letters to my family and, and my partner Rachel and my brother and sister and, and a couple of mates and, you know, letters that you should, should never have to send, but at the same time, I think it was, you know, quite relevant in terms of the danger that is in Afghanistan. Um, and I wrote them before I went there. Um, and it was in that moment of waiting that, you know, I pulled in, pulled in my mate and was like, look, bro, you got to go on my computer and, and print off these letters and send them out uh, to, to who they're addressed to. And uh, he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, worries. you'll be right, mate. Like, don't worry about it. So, yeah, don't, don't think about that. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's it. Like, you can't think any further yeah. ahead. And um, I was probably waiting next to the, the, the vehicles for maybe 15, 20 minutes, maybe, maybe shorter, maybe, maybe a little bit longer. You know, your sense of time 
starts to get a bit skewed in those yeah. situations. It did feel like a very long time yeah. and, and due to the remote location of where we were in Uruzgan uh, from the medical and the, the airfield, um, that was what was you know, blowing that time out and probably 45 minutes, 40, 45 minutes until that chopper got to me. So, um, so when, I, when they loaded me, me onto the chopper, like I didn't, I didn't get a chance to say goodbye or anything like that. It just sort of slid me on, closed the door and it took off and um, you know, I had a drink of water and yeah, it just felt like I'm gonna be okay yeah. now because the chopper's got me. But unbeknown to me, like I, I passed in and out of consciousness, I was yeah. in and out of consciousness on this flight, so. Were you thinking about your legs at that stage or were you just more in life? Life, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah they, they got to me and I, you know, I knew that my life was going to change. I was pretty upset, but at the same time, there uh, was this feeling that I'm going to be okay. Yeah. Um, and, and I was sort of in and out of consciousness as they sort of flew me. I don't remember much of the flight at all. Um, I remember probably the first like, three minutes. And then uh, the next thing I know, I'm getting sort of carried out of a, an ambulance and onto a medical trauma bay. And I could see a few people that I, I'd recognized before from my time uh, on Tarankout. And then, yeah, and then, then I got put to sleep and I was sort of woken up maybe 15, 16 hours later wow. um, after going through a few different medical bases in Afghanistan, um, about to be transitioned from uh, Afghanistan to Germany. I don't remember the first phone call with my parents. I think they were the ones I called first. They... Must have been difficult for, obviously, your, your parents and your partner to, to hear what it was. Yeah. Yeah, so a pretty, pretty sort of rough situation um, for, for everyone involved. Um, my dad was at the time, he was working in the mines, so he was at work and um, obviously receiving that news um, at work is pretty, pretty rough. Um, Mum was at home and, and thought that my little brother had been in trouble with the police because uh, the, the, the military rock up in uniform yeah, and mum didn't click first. And then uh, Rachel, because she was in New Zealand at the time, um, she didn't get the phone call until the next morning. Um, how, how did she describe those events? Of uh, not with pleasant memory. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so she's obviously on a remote placement by herself without her friends or family around her. Yes. So um, that's pretty pretty hard thing to do. And then uh, she she went from this medical placement to uh, an auntie and uncle's place, who's who's not too far away, and then. And then went from there up to, to Queenstown to hang out uh, with my one of my really good mates from school, and they sort of you know managed all my uh, yeah. well wish messages that yeah, were yeah. coming through from from friends all over the world, which was you know re really nice and really important to, to sort of help that process for everyone. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I obviously don't know know your partner Rachel yeah. personally, but she sounds like an amazing yeah, person. Yeah, and, she is. Yeah. Um, so I guess moving a little bit forward into the hospital recovery and. And I understand that from the incident itself, it was mm -hmm. roughly three months, um, give mm -hmm. or take, that you basically were, because you had to learn to walk again and you were walking yep. up on prosthetic legs and it was only a three month. Yeah, gap. yeah. Um, hospital was rough, eh? Um, it, it wasn't the nicest experience. And, and like, don't get me wrong, like the hospital, the, the two hospitals that I was in were both in Brisbane. Um, Green uh, Slopes was the second one that I finished up hospital. The first one was um, Royal Brisbane Women's Hospital and I was in the orthopedic ward, so uh, I was fortunate enough to have my own room, but like a couple of doors down there was a couple of guys and I was there for you know, six weeks. A couple of guys that had come off motorbikes and tore legs off that way and they weren't um, dealing with it um, all that well and there's nothing I could do about it. Yeah. I can't push myself around to the, their room and yeah. have a chat to them. It's just not like that in hospital. Yeah. You don't feel um, that your comments or, or uh, advice would be welcome in that yeah. situation either. You'd sort of, sort of want people to request you to, to yeah, talk to them. And I remember the first day of rehabilitation was like the, probably about four or five weeks in because uh, I broke a heap of bones in my wrist at the same time. And it, it sort of prevented me from transitioning uh, from the bed into a wheelchair by myself. And, and once I was able to do that, that was when my rehab really began. I you know, was put into this wheelchair and, and that's when I realized that I was now a disabled person. Um, yeah, right. It was a really, really hard thing for me to, to process and swallow. I was now a person who required you know, prosthetics, uh, wheelchairs, shower chairs, driving modifications, just to live a normal life. Before that, you're a you know, fit and healthy 24-year-old Aussie combat engineer, and then in a matter of yeah. seconds, your whole life changes and you're, you're in a wheelchair with prosthetics. Yeah, and you've been sort of through this situation as well. You're in a place where 
everyone's trying to get better, mm. but you're all at different stages. Yeah. And it's really rough to find or hard to find your your motivation within a hospital because it is so clinical. Yeah, it's, it's, it needs to be a clean clinical place for the doctors and nurses to be able to do the best treatment. And it's really oh, hard. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. And I coincidentally spent about three, four weeks at Greenslopes Hospital myself late last year. And, and I'm quite open with, with saying that I, some of the darkest days I've had, and I look back on it and admit that, you know, when I was probably depressed, um, mm. going through what I was going through at that point in time. I guess when you were touching on this before, when what it was like going to that wheelchair and associating yourself with a disabled person. Yeah. Your mental health throughout this ordeal and, and that pivotal moment there, did it take a bit of a beating and how did you find that and how did you overcome it? Yeah, um, I, I remember just breaking down and crying. Mm. It was yeah, it was a really hard thing for me to swallow because like you're saying, you know, a fit 24 year old that had climbed mountains and, and kayaked and done all the rest of the things that I'd done um, and now was confined to this chair or someone helping me to do things and you know, being that age as well you want to be quite independent yeah, and you, sure. you've sort of found your who you are as well um, and what you but it was you know that fortunately um, Rachel was there for this this situation and um, you know, we went off to, to rehab that day and did like three or four minutes of sitting on a Swiss ball or a Busso ball and then went back to the room and you know, went outside for the first time. Um, you know, you're conscious of how people will look at you and, yeah. and you know, now I've just come to, to embrace it. Sure. I hardly wear pants, you're, you're, so I, I don't really care. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, you're an Aussie hero. Yeah. You should yeah. embrace it. Obviously, you yeah. can understand that, of course, that would be a, quite an emotional mm. moment and quite a sensitive moment for you when you're, you're first associating yourself and people looking at you and yeah. and you feel like you're being judged. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and massively because you know, as, as a, an average human being with all their limbs and you know, are completely able to do whatever they want, um, they walk through life almost invisible mm. and then you have something that's different and that intrigues people's curiosity. It sort of sparks and people will look at that, you know, they might comment or, or say something. Now, a lot of times there's Kids are actually the funniest and they're probably the, the easiest to deal with because you understand it's so raw and it's, you know, they don't have a filter, but sometimes the no filter is a really good thing because they just say what they want to, want to hear. True, yeah. Whereas adults will just be like, look and won't know how to perceive yeah, or take or anything. And, and kids, you know, that, that's, I think that's the, the beauty of, of youth, you know, they're so um, inquisitive. But yeah, as, as a young person going through that and trying to sort of deal with that, that uh, social stigma that's yeah. now you know, unfortunately been forced upon me um, of disability and, and you know, trying to find what, what, who I am again is, is difficult. And I, I suppose you, you soon enough embrace, learned to embrace that and it by no mm. means would have been easy and, and through you know, support of Rachel and family, yep. and you did learn to embrace it. I know when you first had that blast and being carried off in a stretch, you said to your mates, you know, you'll see me in the Paralympics. Um, <laughs> when was it in your recovery, in your rehab, we actually thought, you know what, this is going to be, this will happen. This is a, this is a goal of mine that I will, will accomplish. I'll be honest, and when I said that comment on, on the stretcher getting carried to the helicopter, like I, I sort of said it in a way in which was a bit of peace of mind for the guys in around me uh, it wasn't necessarily no I, no no way yeah. like uh, you know, the the amount of training and effort and everything now i know that they have to go through in order to get there there was no way i had even given that a thought at all yeah. so when when i started going down the rehabilitation sort of path just to be able to do and like stand up and walk the paralympics was not part of that thinking at all you know the, no, no at that stage i think no way correct me if i'm wrong but one of your early motivations or goals was you wanted to be standing in the, the welcoming back parade mm. for for your other i guess yep. comrades who were returning from afghanistan um, yeah. and there's quite some powerful footage of two mates holding you up yep. and you're walking behind the the parade itself yep. And that was kind of one of your key drives. To yeah, a lot slower than those guys, but I must say that. <laughs> Lagging <laughs> in the back. Yeah, yeah. But, but um, the correct technique. That's no, right. no. It's, uh, it, it, that was a, a moment in which like, I, I, I very much value my memory bank. And it's mainly because it was a, a, a close, closing of that chapter of my time mm. in the military and you know, being able to put that to rest and being included in that and then 
being able to refocus my, my motivation and, and, and um, goals elsewhere. And I think uh, being able to, to march in that, you know, emphasize, put that full stop there yeah. for me. And for those listening and watching, I, I will try to find that, that footage and, and try to post on the 25 Stay Alive yeah, social yeah. media in some way, because I think it is very, very powerful, powerful footage. And so I suppose once you, you got, uh, got through those initial, initial hurdles and when was it then when you realized that you were recovering, um, your rehab, you're, you're learning to walk again, you're getting back into your fitness, your recovery, your strength training. You then went on to win, what, seven world championships? Yeah, or <laughs> yeah a few. Um, <laughs> too many to, to count. Yeah, um, I guess, you know, when I started sort of exploring para sport was, was through sort of uh, the, the marine trial games was the first exposure to it. And it's, that was the first time I'd been around multiple people with amputations yeah. and disabilities and they were doing all these things. I was like, man, I can do all this stuff. Yeah, like yeah. If, if I just adapt myself and my, my prosthetics or my, my style of walking in this way or that way, I could do what that person's doing. And you know, the, the, the amount of motivation and, and benefit I got out of that was something that I, I can't under, undervalue at all because those, that moment was when I was like, actually, this might be possible. So I started to explore in, in different sports. So, you know, I did wheelchair basketball, archery, swimming. I tried, looked at maybe rowing. I went over to New Zealand and tried out for the New Zealand kayak team and they were pretty, pretty keen on me. I was like, oh yeah, this might work. And so then I came back to Australia and then I, after that um, trial and I was like, oh, how am I gonna do this and compete for New Zealand? And the, the more I got thinking, the more I realized that it was just gonna be too hard for yeah. me to, to, to compete for New Zealand and live in Australia. So I just made the switch and, and you know, done the green and gold and, and sort of off I went. And it's not a decision that I regret at all. Okay, yeah. um, it was a decision that I, I thought about a lot. It took me about two months to decide. And I think it's just mainly because of my upbringing with New Zealand and, and um, the sports teams that I follow and things like that. They're yeah, all, yeah. all New Zealand. So once I sort of made that choice, it, it was the easy choice and it yeah. just worked for me. And, and what I was trying to achieve, and they're the, the country that supported me the most in order for my success. Yeah, so. no, the map, yeah, mm. yeah, but you'll always have a soft spot. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. So, saying. so then it was basically two years to the day, correct me if I'm wrong, from the incident to when you won your first world championship. Um, yeah, in, plus or minus a couple of days. Yeah, but yeah, it was, it was, I was in Moscow, which was where the world champs were when it, when you know, two years anniversary, and um, it was, it was a, a really special moment. You know, it was only eight months or nine months after I picked up the paddle and uh, the first time and had a go at it and you know, really thought that, should I could get to the Paralympics here? It might, might be possible. Um, once I sort of started getting into that high performance mindset and, and looking towards you know, those 1% improvements, it become more and more of a reality that I'm now a Paralympian and, and I'm gonna go down that path and, and pursue you know, the, the gold. Um, once I started to have some success in the sport. It was going to be gold, not silver, not bronze. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I, I, for, so that first world championships, I was in the outrigger canoe. And so for everyone out there, the difference between a canoe and a kayak is a kayak is a, a double bladed sort of paddle. Um, it's got no um, outrigger on the side and yet it's got a rudder as well. And the outrigger canoe has got a single bladed paddle. It's got no rudder and it's got a, an outrigger to, to help balance it. So it's a, the traditional Polynesian style canoe. Uh, whereas a kayak's you know, more from uh, the Inuit, um, you know, the, the Eskimo sort of style kayak and, and it's sort of been developed into something that's very high performance, made out of carbon and yeah. it's about 12 kilos. And, and, and you're, you're predominantly training for the kayak. No, the other way around. So I was, I was in the canoe first and then I was like, yeah, cool. This is the sport they've chosen for the Paralympics. And then, and then they swapped it and over the kayak. And I'd done no training whatsoever in the kayak. And I had about three weeks to learn how to do it for our national selection events. And yeah, it was, it was a, a pretty rough day. I got a phone call on Sunday night from the coach at like oh, 9.30. Oh, that training you had done. Yeah, she was, oh, I've got some bad news. I was like, all right, oh, this is weird. And uh, she goes, oh yeah, they've replaced the, the canoe with the, with the kayak and uh, for the Rio. And I was like, oh, righto, this is gonna be... Great. Is, yeah, yeah, so it's not a smooth sailing. I was like, you beauty, I've won the world championships. It's gonna be a breeze. I remember going to training that Monday morning and, and just paddling in, in the outrigger canoe and just wanting to get out and just smash my boat. I, just, I was pretty angry. 
But at the same time, you know, I'd set that goal to get to the Paralympics yeah, and I was yeah. like, no, nah, I need to do this. And I had to sit down with the coach after training that morning and I was like, all right, we need to, we need to teach me how to balance these kayaks because they are so unforgiving. They'll yeah. tip you out in a, in a split second without any remorse or, or reason other than you not sitting in the right way. So um, I was doing like four on-water sessions a day um, trying to get up. I suppose it's a good, good point keeping on the training part because we spoke offline about that. Mm. For people that watch the Olympics or Paralympics and those events like you know you won gold in, mm. uh, which we'll touch on shortly, but you said it's, it's you know it's a roughly say eighty second type event where yeah. you watch the race and go oh you know Curtis yep. won gold for his country and it's like you know all done amazing yep. all done yeah. all done over in eighty seconds. Yep. But the leader, not only for any Olympic event, but yourself personally going from learning to walk again with prosthetics mm. to training for a, a certain event, which then gets changed to another event mm. and then training <laughs> hours and hours a day to get to that 80 second race is pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's not, when you put it like that, it's a bit, a bit more, I don't know, it's bigger than what, you, <laughs> yes, what, what, you, what I think about it. So. Yeah, the race, the race is like one race is only about like 45 seconds, 40 seconds. And I, I do a heat and then if I'm unlucky and I, I stuff my race up, I'll do a semi-final and then you'll do your final. And that's sort of just because of the amount yeah. of athletes at the moment. And when I raced in Rio, like I did my event and I, and I won and, you know, I did really well. And I got off the water and I was like, man, is that it? Like, is it over? Is it actually over? It just happened so quickly. Yeah, it was over. And I sort of got off and I was like, man, maybe I could do another sport. Maybe I could do something else. So I started to look into that. And fortunately for me, the, uh, the International Canoe Federation and the Paralympic Committee have added the outrigger canoe to my program for Tokyo. So oh, awesome. I didn't have to look too hard yeah. or long uh, for that opportunity to do two, two events. So now, uh, now my, my so Paralympics canoe. Yeah. yeah, hopefully. Hopefully uh, two, two gold medals will be, will be really nice. But I think... You sort of have to set realistic goals. Now that's another thing that I like to, to, to point out is, for me, the gold medal in Rio was a bonus. Just to get to the Paralympics was my goal and I achieved that and I was very happy. And setting realistic goals I think is important because you don't want to overstretch yourself. You don't want to set something that's ridiculous and impossible, but you want to set this, this goal that's fairly realistic and then you can work back and set all these yeah, other little goals absolutely. in order to, to achieve that big one. And uh, for me, I just would love to be uh, on the podium uh, in Tokyo twice, and, and uh, if they're gold, um, I'll be even more happy. But um, I think I'm, they're uh, yeah. pretty uh, pretty amazing goals to have. I think most yeah. people uh, their goal. I think my goal is to to do an eighty k trek. Um, yeah, cool. That's, know, a, that's a long way, man. My goal is to be on the podium twice in Tokyo for the Paralympics. I'm just like, maybe I'm going to set my heart yeah, to do No, it's it's awesome, and it's um. I suppose on that, when you won that goal, it happened quickly, but what was the moment like on the podium uh, with the obviously Australian anthem um, playing, you're standing on that podium with you know, support, mm. I understand that you're making your family in the audience. What was it like on that personal level, knowing that you represented your country overseas on deployments as a uh, as an engineer in the yep. Australian army, but then to now be representing your country in the green and gold after just winning gold for Australia. What was that moment like? It was really special, you know, um, having having my friends and family there, both from New Zealand and Australia, in the in the stands. And I remember being up at the start line. I could hear them from the start line. That it's like nine thirty in the morning, about ten beers deep. So awesome. that, that that had a bit, sure. <laughs> yeah. And that, that you know, making wizards wizard sticks out of the cups they're getting. So um, yeah, having a great time doing it and, and making the atmosphere even better. So. Uh, to have them there and be be a part of that was was really special and that you know the feeling on the podium was was amazing but the, the feeling that caught me off guard was actually when i went across the line and i won i, I was expecting you know celebration excitement and you know joy and all that sort of thing you get when you win uh, but what i got was just this this huge wave of relief that just came over me yeah. and it was just like boom i, I did it i did it and, and such a proud moment. Yeah, and I think that there's sort of the, this, the effect or the, the overwhelming result of, of that relief. But in, in order to set all those goals and then do them, I think uh, was one of those things that, you know, for it to finally come through and come all to fruition, it was, it was an amazing feeling. And, and being up on that podium, that's when the joy and celebration and happiness came. People were talking about Tokyo before Rio, were, like yeah. the, the games. Yeah. And, 
you know, how much more it's going to be bigger and, and um, you know we, we're expecting that these games that are just going to be next level and um, you know the, the the excitement that's building for these games I think it's going to be even bigger and, and because the uh, the Japanese time zone is about one hour different to us. Yeah, it's going to be, yeah, even, gonna be even more amazing. Yeah, home yeah and, and you'll be able to hear them from Japan, I think. So be no, great. it's going to be, it's gonna be yeah. exciting. I'm sure we all can't wait to, to see you out there. And I know you're going to be glued to the TV and our two events. And yeah, so you can yeah. have two podiums and hopefully two hopefully, goals. Hopefully. Um, and I suppose we'll, um, just before we, we wrap things up there, obviously Tokyo 2020 is your goal at the moment. Obviously, you're training yeah, for yeah. it. You're just in Tokyo. That's kind of the the big main focus for, for Curtis yeah. McGrath, but also I understand you're getting married in two months. Yeah. So that's obviously on a personal right. level, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, yeah, it's a life event and I think it's um, really nice to, to, to have someone like Rachel to be able to, to share the highs and lows with me or like we've done in the last sort of eight years, nine years, and um, to, to, you know, to, to put a ring on it as they as they say yeah. it's um you know make it the, the official and probably a long time coming but um we, we like my partner's an icu doctor so she's a busy lady and, yeah. and i'm a busy wow. person with my stuff so uh just trying to find the time and um the rest of my my para canoe team they're, they're actually off to the world cup when i'm getting married so um i had to sort of make up the priority on, on life and on what was more important to me and, and the, the family is always going to be the one that wins that battle war veteran Gold medalist Paralympian and the uh, ICU doctor, a bit of a power couple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's uh, no, 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 that'll be a proud moment as well. Yeah, walking walking down the aisle with what you've been through, yep. with the support, uh, obviously that Rachel provided you over those yeah. those years in your journey. Um, it would be obviously a very special moment yep. uh, for you, and and uh, and obviously no doubt saying that at that time of that incident, the IED blast, it's something you probably didn't think potentially was ever going to happen. So I think no, no, it's funny. I, I don't tell many people this, but we joked before I went over to Afghanistan. Like, what, what are you going to do if you lose your legs? And I was like, I don't know, go to the Paralympics and do running or something like that. So <laughs> wow. just dark sense of humour that sort of you know you sort of trying to find the positives and the, and the negatives and, and looking at what the opportunity and what it is. So you literally spoke about if you did lose Yeah, your and it was a joking comment, like like losing time. brand new boots or going to the Paralympics as I'm like, on the stretch. Look after yourself. Don't lose your legs while you're over there. <laughs> yeah. what, what if you did? Oh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to go on the Paralympics. Oh, I don't know. I don't, I'm pretty sure. I don't remember you saying goal. But, <laughs> but uh, you're just going to the Paralympics. You know, I sort of saw... Uh, and when I, when my you know did lose my legs and getting carried on the stretcher, you know that was not a thought. I don't remember that that conversation I had to Rachel before I left. But um, you know, there was there was the London Games that had just been on in in, uh, in 2012, and, and you know we'd come back from patrol and watch the watch the Olympics and watch all those people doing amazing things. And the promotion for the Paralympics was was on in between the ads and yeah. things like that. And we got to see these these athletes doing doing amazing things. And you know, yeah. Until you've seen the Paralympics, you actually you, you underestimate you know what the athletes there are, are going through yeah, on a day-to-day -day basis, and it is exactly the same as the able-bodied Olympic athletes. They, they're up early in the yeah, morning. They're working the same. They're, they're trying as hard as they can. Yeah, they might be missing a leg. That might slow them down by 0.5 a second, but they're equally as bad as. If anything, the training's more difficult because you're more, like you said, offline. You know, yeah, you yeah. You need, you need your eight hours of sleep because it might certain things that we yeah. take for granted uh, with all our limbs. You yep. spend more energy and time. In yeah, so things right. take longer for yeah. you to just do so. normal day-to-day -day tasks, which we often take for granted yeah and everyone's all, always excited about the, the the big the big sport that of the paralympics is the wheelchair rugby and yeah. you know that's pretty cool and australia's very very good at yeah. that so i think uh we'll have an amazing team that'll head over to tokyo down the track rugby yeah. thing. Uh, no i'm actually i can't i can't oh. it's a it's a disability that is you have to have three limbs affected and okay. uh, got i'm definitely criteria. wrong on this but <laughs> that yeah there's certain criteria in which i don't fit in which is which is great because it gives those people an opportunity to to have uh, a sport which is you know so much fun to play if you ever get a chance in a wheelchair to, to play wheelchair rugby it's, yeah. it's good fun now Curtis I just want to quickly ask um, I understand you're the uh, mentor for the Van Houston's Mentor of Men campaign which yep. is successful Australian men give life advice to younger generations which I think is a fantastic initiative yes. for those young men and women listening yeah. uh, to this show what's some advice that you can give them specifically if they're going through say an adversity in life I think um, 
you know, through, through what I've been through, learning the adversity is actually a teaching situation. You can learn so much from adversity, how you react to it, what you see in yourself and, and who you are. And then obviously the opportunities that arise from that situation. So there was always going to be growth from you know, a, a bad situation. Yes. You're able to, to learn, you become more resilient, you um, find in which way you're able to um, overcome or, or, or solve the problem. And, and also you actually find yourself learning about who is there to support you in that, that hard time. And, and whether it might be a, a lesser adversity, maybe you drop your phone down the, the toilet or something like that, but it's, you know, that's a yeah. shit of a situation to have. No, um, exactly, something that might- but it's, it's, it's so annoying. Something that might be trivial for someone, yeah. though. It might be you know, hugely Life. significant yeah. to someone else, and that's why it's, it's all- I saw a video the other day of this girl, this Instagram influencer, and her account got deleted, and she's pretty distraught on that. I thought it was amusing, but, yeah. um, but that's a big deal for them. And, and um, you know, that, that's their livelihood. and. and you know, she, she will find that herself as probably a different person after that, but has learned something from that situation and, and, um, and, and is able to grow and maybe become more influential in, in her community rather yeah. than on Instagram, rather than yeah, exactly. something that actually doesn't mean too much if you flick the switch off. Yeah. But, you know, and then for me, um, the one I like to, to bash on about is, is using the opportunities that show up. Mm. There's, there's so many things that come up of an adversity and, and my one's quite obvious and significant that I've seen that I can become a Paralympian now and, and off I went and, and capitalize on that. And then from that, you know, there's, I've had amazing opportunities to travel around the world and compete for my country, meet people and do public speaking and address the nation in 2017 for the, the dawn service address at the war memorial. Yeah, just so many amazing things and amazing people have, have come out of the woodwork to, to help me and also to provide opportunities in which I can help them too. And, and this is one of them, yeah. No, absolutely, and look, you, there are many words to describe you, you Curtis, <laughs> but I think uh, one that comes across just from speaking to you, so you're, also, you're very humble. Uh, Thank you. I think that's uh, an amazing trait to have and for what you've been through, you're extremely humble humble person, I've, uh, extremely inspirational, um, and you know, you, just by speaking to you today, you've inspired me, and, and uh, if you want to follow Curtis's journey, uh, he does document on his Instagram, uh, Curtis McGrath, and uh, he does, you know, post some, some amusing stories yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. I think I saw one actually, a, a story when you're uh, you into your wine. Yeah, um, yeah, don't mind you, it. And there was, <laughs> there was a story from Central Otago, you yeah, good yeah. wines there, yeah, yeah. and it was a, you had a picture photo of your stuff, and you said, good stuff, on a bad stump and then the good stump was Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that the one was called Stump Jump. Stump yeah, Jump. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so no, look, you are inspirational, man. Yeah, you are a humble you. guy. And, and um, congratulations thank for what you. you've accomplished yeah. so far with, with obviously your, your personal level, your personal goals, but also what you've done representing your country for Australia. Yeah. And I'm sure myself and, and everyone listening and watching can't wait to see you out in the water in Tokyo next year in 2020. Yeah, and, not uh, far. cheering you on. It was actually 500 days on, on, on Saturday, so it's not too far 500 away. 500 days. Yeah, wow. so it's no, almost one hand, but. <laughs> and look, now thanks, Curtis, for, yeah. for coming on the show, and, and I really appreciate you taking time out and, right. and sharing you. your journey with us. Thanks, yeah, Curtis. You've been listening to the 25 Stay Alive podcast. Subscribe on iTunes or Spotify to get fresh new weekly episodes. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at 25 Stay Alive. And feel free to send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.